Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is Mads Faselius, CEO of Danish SaaS customer experience startup Dixa. Dixa, which is headquartered in Copenhagen, is a new type of customer service software that, in their words, allows brands to create friendships with their customers. Since 2015, Dixa has grown rapidly into a company of 180 employees with headquarters in Copenhagen and offices in seven other countries. In today's episode, among the many interests my guest has, we will look deeper into the world of customer service, as well as delve into what startups need to do if they're not a point solution, but are actually looking to displace well-established players in the market. And if we have time, I also want to ask him about his views on the larger European ecosystem and what one can learn from the Nordic countries. So welcome, Mads. Thank you so much, Anissa. And thank you for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Mads, I wanted to start off with something that really fascinated me when I looked at Dixa, the website, and read about you, which is your vision of creating a world where everyone, employees, customers, and business partners treat each other as friends. It sounds really grand, but not what I would expect as the foundation of a B2B SaaS company. I would love to hear why you feel so strongly about this vision and where it came from. Great question. I think we have to go all the way back to when I was 19 years old, actually. I was a contact center agent working in one of the largest BPOs or external contact centers in, in Europe. At that time, it was one of the toughest jobs you, you could get as part-time or full-time. And I experienced a lot of angry customers, also a lot of sometimes sad or angry colleagues, mostly because we were working in um, pretty stressful environments and with a lot of old, to some extent, crappy software and systems and tools, making it a pretty tough day going through all these customer requests. Back then, it was mainly phone and a little bit of email, but the things started to change as the years went by. So all the way back from then, I've been looking into, first of all, how can you do this better from a technology perspective? There must be a better way to help customer service employees, agents, and of course, customers to have a much better experience. Back then, all the big players were promising great, smart, omnichannel solutions to help us. And also, brands started to talk about the, the fact of being there for their consumers, being close to them, empathy. At least some of the dot-com brands back then did that. But the real side of things were very much a cost-centric focus. Didn't give much for being a call center agent or a team leader manager. Long story short, it was actually, and it is, a, a combination of personal as well as professional frustration and fascination around a, a problem that should have been solved many years ago, but also putting empathy, friendship, and a, and a, and a portion of love into the experience you have as an employee sitting with all these customer requests, but also as a customer or consumer on the other end, connecting with the brand and especially connecting with the brand's employees. As a company, we also have that culture. Of course, it's a business and we have to make tough choices sometimes. We need to make bold decisions and it's tough to drive a startup and now a scale-up. We have very much a friendship culture that we also want to bring into a product, into our partnerships, into our go-to-market. And of course, we are helping our brands today succeed with what we call customer friendship, which is a combination of a philosophy, but definitely also using technology in the right way contact center support has always been viewed as a cost center, like you said. 
it's not something that people think of when they think of customer experience or brand. I mean, there is a connection, but it's always viewed first and foremost as a cost center. So when you talk about friendship and creating a connection between the customer and agents, how is that something that you're able to translate into a value proposition that they get? It starts from the side of understanding your customers and respecting your customers. And that also goes with your employees, especially your, your contact center agents or customer service representatives. But what we see today is that still a lot of companies maximize and optimize the efficiency and productivity to basically make sure that uh, it's a cost or profit-centric organization they have that builds on their brand and their product and their experience, which is a good thing. Starting there, many technology vendors and many, many brands, especially consumer brands that operate on so many different channels and touch points, they have to get order in the house, so to speak, with the channels, their data, their touch points in order to take the next step. So get away from the cost or even profit-centric orientation and go up in what we call the, the, the customer friendship ladder or the customer friendship fortress. Next, the holy grail for many brands, especially consumer brands, is of course referral, advocacy, loyalty, which is also driven a lot with, with classic metrics we know today like CSAT and NPS and voice of the customer and these great things. And on top of that, as an aggregation of great support metrics and customer metrics, we see there is a higher abstraction basically aggregating the classics metrics, the more customer-centric metrics, and the real business value outcome. This is, of course, lifetime value. How many referrals, how much word of mouth, how much ambassador acting are we seeing from our customer base? So basically getting an insight and control of the customer base at scale. This is done quite nicely in B2B, and uh, many of the customer service players today also come from the ticketing world, which is built for IT support for tech companies. B2B companies. But in the consumer world, it's much more difficult. And here you are seeing a transformation from multiple social media posting and mentioning to a one-to-one communication where you can actually have this relationship with your customer across different channels. My point with that is that it's not just a fluffy marketing word and a community builder and a culture thing for us and the brands we engage with. And we are primarily engaging today with consumer brands or B2B brands that have the similar DNA. And that's for a reason. We are not a ticketing system. We don't only focus on on, on email or, or deflection. We focus on engagement and relationship. But that can actually today be measured and we are getting better and better at it because of the data we have on real business outcomes and real business value. That's what Dix's mission and vision truly is. And that's what we see with customer friendship. That could have another name, right? It could have some customer-centric metric name. But for us, we talk about a customer friendship score that is aggregated from end-to-end experiences with a brand and its customers or consumers at scale. You know, one of the things that I find really challenging for companies, especially in their early stage, is trying to figure out the reference that they give to their customers. What are we? We are the X. And when you're talking to me, a lot of what you're saying seems to live in multiple worlds. Part of it could be customer service. And like you said, the ticketing system, but some of it is also CSAT and NPS and referrals and loyalty. Some of that is the customer success or customer experience. I'm curious to understand what was the process as a company you took 
to define the category that you want to play in? First of all, it starts very early on how ambitious are you? Do you want to create your own category and ecosystem? eventually being a platform play or do you want to play in others ecosystem uh, as a point solution or even a platform that's perfectly fine both it's a very different uh, journeys as a startup and scale up in in our world we started with the problem back in 2015 where we founded the company in copenhagen we talked a lot with both nordics but also some of the leading uh, consumer brands in the uk and, and germany to figure out what was actually on their mind what kept them up at night especially when they were scaling and what we saw actually back then was that the they call it the omnichannel? It's it's a buzzword. It's it's almost old school today, but just being equally strong across all channels and touch point and have it supported by data is extremely important. Otherwise, you cannot go to the next step. In customer service alone, you have three big industries: the call center kings, the ticketing masters, and the messaging gurus. They are really good at, at different things and can be a good fit for companies that, for instance, B2B company, 90% on email. That's great for like a, a ticketing uh, vendor. So th- that's one transformation and consolidation going on now. That is going into a platform play where all channels and touch points and modalities and apps, they will merge. So that's a big play in itself. That's, that's where we started. Why don't we have any vendor in the world that actually started from scratch building a conversational approach, which is how human beings are actually you know, engaging, just very much consumer-like. Use the same data foundation, the same logic, the same workflows to route these different conversations, even though it's very difficult to build. I can tell you that. That's the foundation we wanted to disrupt. You can build a pretty good business of that. When we go out, we typically replace three or four point solution vendors. But... We also have seen that when brands could, could get order in the house, fix the multi-channel on the channel, then they can start and look at how can we actually leverage, help understand our customer base because one-to-one conversations across different channels and touch points is much more worth than some social media likes or mentioning on Instagram or Facebook. This is where the true gold and value lies. We very early knew that if we can fix that, then we can help the brands have all the conversations and data in one place and also connected to e-commerce platforms and CRM and whatever they have. And with that data, we could actually set things almost on fire in a good way, actionable, predictable, proactive, and that's a customer experience game. So we are very quickly now moving from a customer service platform or customer engagement platform into the customer experience industry. If you take the whole customer service industry and the customer experience industry together, it's a huge, it's over $100 billion market. You also see that the customer service players, point solution players, the marketing tech players, and the customer experience classic players, they are all going towards the new generation of customer service. They are trying to buy acquiring companies, by spinning up point solutions. That's because the brands, especially the consumer brands, but also B2B brands, they're coming now. They need that unified approach and that insightful approach to customer experience and also agent experiences. The employee experience becomes equally important with the customer experience because it is one-to-one communications, regardless whether it's a friendly, nice chatbot that understands you and your problem, or it's a human being. Those things are going to be essential for the brands going forward, because otherwise you and I as consumers, we won't connect or we'll have just one bad experience and then we'll move on to the next food delivery company or a fintech company. So to recap, you started off positioning yourself as a 
customer service software. And now you're moving more into a customer experience software, which is trying to bring the worlds of messaging, email and ticketing systems together. Yes. And also taking the next proactive approach to understanding the end-to-end customer experiences. If we see in the value chain, the, the package is not delivered, you have a bad experience in some parts of the value chain or journey, we can then proactively detect that problem and then reach out automatically by an assistant or a human being, that part of the customer experience where we fix and optimize broken links. That's very much a next generation customer experience play. But if you don't have the foundation of customer service technology channels and data in place, you cannot do it. Of course, we are a software company, but we are building a platform where all channels and all touch points are are dealt with, but also where we integrate to the growing ecosystem of many other players. So they integrate to our platform, we use the data, we route, we enrich the systems in real time and so, so on and so forth. So we don't need to own all data, but we have all the conversational data so we can help the brands understand and be actionable in real time. When you're looking at your go-to-market strategy, who are you thinking of as your competitors? Who are you positioning against in the minds of the customer? That is one of the the tricky things of being disruptive against several industries at, at the same time. The biggest competitors for us are basically the CRM or ticketing providers that has a bundle and suite of products. It's typically Salesforce, Sendesk. They have these different solutions in point solutions that they try to stitch together in the front end because they know this is what the brands want and the market is going in that direction. But they are coming from the B2B world, so they are challenged in basically building that foundation. But we know that in the minds of many customer service champions out there and decision makers, these are heavy companies with big marketing budgets and positioning. So we are seeing them as our big competitors. This is where 50% of the time we replace them in some form, typically around email. But at the same time, which is the difficult story sometimes to understand also from a go-to-market perspective, we are saying goodbye to Intercom and TalkDisk, for instance. So eight out of 10 companies today use three or four plus systems just for driving their channels. You can say in the old world, Sendisk and Salesforce is definitely uh, competitors of ours. But in the future, and maybe the near future, we are positioning ourselves into a new category that I cannot uh, give you all the secrets about right now. And in that category, there will be different players. Some will come from the customer service space, let's call it that. Some will come from the marketing space, some from the traditional CX space, and probably also you will see a, a couple coming from the CRM. That's the interesting part, because going into that, you will face new competitors that are strong in some points where we also weak in some points, of course, as we develop rapidly our product and platform. And that's the trick. And that's very difficult to do, but we come pretty far now on that positioning and that category building, but you cannot put all your bets into the new category and positioning because nobody really knows it yet. Every month it's growing and content and evangelism and me talking and great opportunities like this, but you still have to fight in existing worlds because that is where uh, you, you grow your business. So that's kind of a dual strategy. And that I think not many, at least of the, the founders CEO I've talked to uh, is aware of, you actually can pull that off. Of course, you need some great partners. You need some fantastic people on board to drive that vision. But that is necessary if you want to build the new multi-billion dollar company within, I would call it, 
and it's the new experience space. I think that's a really fascinating world that you're in right now. And I think one that probably a lot of startups experience. I know in my last company, we were exactly this. We were one category and we had to keep our foot on the pedal in that category because that was the one that was generating the revenues. But we knew we wanted to move to this other category because of our roadmap and where we thought we wanted to take the product and the and the vision of the company. And it was really challenging to be clear in terms of investment and focus for all the different teams on where to execute and how to execute. Any advice or insight you have for other startups that may be in this position? The good news is that fighting and growing in a more established space or several spaces as we do is a good thing if you have a close focus on your ICPs, the ideal customer profiles. For us, it's a variety of consumer brands in various verticals because they have the same pain. It's more about finding that DNA. And of course, there has to be a growing number of brands. You have to find that first because then it's not a problem for you to develop your roadmap very much aligned with the trends that you see in the broader market across verticals or in one vertical if it's big enough. And at the same time, having some of your flagships, doesn't have to be big, but some of the pioneers that can see the same future as you. We are a product-led organization. So end-to-end from our sales processes and engagement processes, we also have these specialist processes where we go in and help them understand how the agents are working today in many different systems and silos, what can be optimized. Very consultant approach to the things. With all that information coming even from the sales process into the onboarding, into the customer success, into the retention, plus product managers that are very customer-centric, also yet commercial, has the understanding of where things are going for a food tech company, for a gaming company, and so on. If you can nail that, which is difficult, it's taking us one and a half years to get to becoming a product-led company. And you need to invest in, in some of the larger customers as well, for good and bad. You need to take some bets so you don't go into a feature race against some of the old competitors or even new competitors. Then you will lose. Working on something new over here and then trying to maintain something old. That's not going to fly. Not if you build a platform. A platform is a living organism that through APIs, through data, through workflows, through intelligence, through machine learning and AI, constantly can move with the market. That's the great benefit of building a platform. Then you can add on. Then you don't need to, okay, we need to find a plug-in for that market or let's be a CRM provider and acquire a company and go into that space. That's what the big ones are doing because they have to grow. When you build a platform in the right way from an architectural standpoint, and you understand your different customers in different verticals, you can take that journey, which is also a positioning journey and a go-to-market journey as a product-led company. It needs a lot of great tools we use for that. I think that's my best advice if you want to build a, a platform that goes from being the best in the old world into a new category. You make it again sound so easy. But I'm sure it's much more complicated than that. I want to dig a little deeper into probably the most important and the hardest part of displacing established vendors in a market. How do you convince people to switch? People are used to doing what they're doing and switching is just not something that human beings like to do. Omnichannel is obviously hard. There's a reason why the big players don't have an omnichannel solution. 
they're all focusing on different aspects of it, just email or just phone, et cetera. That's, I guess, a technology play. But let's assume that at least on the technology side, you figured out some secret sauce and a new architecture, a new model that you are able to make the omni-channel work. My question is, how do you deal with convincing people to switch? That, especially in the early days, is, is a challenge. But there you also need to be really close to your customers. So where we started out, for instance, we found very quickly, also because of the previous companies we were in, where we dealt with the same challenge and figure out we have to start from scratch. We had some good insights already into the e-commerce scene of the Nordics. So when we knew that the, the e-commerce companies and direct-to-consumer brands, they have a lot of pain. So first of all, when you are going against established players and it's a replacement game, of course, there's always greenfield customers, your small customers coming in, and that's great, but you cannot build an entire business on that. There's very few greenfield opportunities left, I would say, in SaaS, but that's another story. So the pain has to be big enough for you to go in and disrupt the landscape. So when we started out, we knew it took quite some time to get phone, email, and live chat. So the three largest channels on earth, you have to figure out how to solve that in a very smart, modern, and intuitive way and efficient. And that took one and a half years, to be honest, before we could even go into them with that. So when we came in, we knew that we had the strongest platform from outside a basic problem. But when you get into the customers, they will open up and tell you, this is insane. We have phone calls coming in here. We don't know what the hell is going on there. We have manual tagging in spreadsheets. We have this vendor for email. We just added the live chat. It's, it's a big miss. We came out in 2018 and our tagline was customer service chaos solved. That was our website tagline. And we went after SMBs, e-commerce, because we knew they were more tech savvy. Many of them grew quite rapidly and they had to be in more channels. WhatsApp, Facebook, Messenger also came into the picture quite quickly. So they needed to solve the foundational work and get that data in play. They didn't use all the data they had. So the pain has to be big. Go for a isolated small group of companies that you can get some data out or you can have some good talks with that or already know the vertical. And then solve in the beginning maybe a basic problem, which is big from a technology standpoint, but with the vision of taking them into a true customer experience world. So we grew from zero to 1 million ARR in nine months in 2018. We launched in January of 2018. It wasn't only Nordics, it was many e-commerce companies around the world, but it was 80% of them were e-commerce retail companies. So we also knew our biggest competitor, still today, Zendesk, were built for B2B tech companies really good at that if you are email centric and want to have some deflection and all that, but it was not for the consumer world. Real live human conversations were how we focused on it. So that was, that, that's of course an important part. And then you have to grow from there. Then you have to be careful. You don't go too big, too fast, go too wide, too fast, which has definitely been some learning for, for us. It has not been a straight road on, on that. However, in our space, you need to build a multi-purpose platform that then can be used in different verticals. Otherwise, because there are transitions and there are different trajectories, what is the compelling event for? When the pain is big enough, yes. When they acquire a company, when they grow beyond 20 agents or 10 agents going into a new market, all these things, you need to be there. So in order to grow fast enough and build a big company, you need to find out which verticals have similar pains. 
And at the same time, can you then go up in the market? And that's what we did. And we did our fair share of mistakes for sure. Mm -hmm. Figure out that we are definitely not for all companies at all. We are looking for companies that really want to invest in their customer experience. They want to use their data. They want to be available on the right channels at the right time. And basically believe in customer friendship. Maybe they call it customer happiness. Maybe they call it customer delight. But you can see many of the team's name in our brands. They have these nice names. And so that's definitely also a fit. I would love to hear about some of the mistakes you made in your early days and the learnings from that that might be interesting and helpful for others. One, as you mentioned, you realize that you were not a good fit and a solution for just anybody looking for a customer service solution. They had to be consumer focused. They had to really be about the brand and they had to have words around customer delight and friendship, et cetera, was one. If you think back, what are some of the biggest learnings you've had in this journey? In the beginning and too early, we, we went into B2B. So already at the end of 2018 and start 2019, we wanted to be someone for all our friends. We could know all of them. The founders would be a perfect match, right? Easy to do. However, we quickly found out that a B2B tech company with, with let's say, 100 customers that primarily have trouble tickets and support tickets coming in because of their tech product. <laughs> and maybe they have a phone line, maybe they have a little bit of a chat. Going into that too early for us was a mistake. We were about customer engagement and customer service at scale. You have many consumers, many channels, a lot of data in place. So trying to be a ticketing system, a CRM system, we didn't want to do that, but we too early went into the B2B. Today, it's another story. We can, and we are taking a lot of B2B companies, especially B2B SMB that has similar DNA as a consumer brand. So that's great. But we went in too early and we stayed out for an entire year after making our fair share of mistakes. Have a good insight on your on your verticals and, and your segments uh, is extremely important, even though there's a lot of customers that want to have your solution because it looks amazing and it's new and it's disruptive. The other thing, that I do see some founders forget. Of course, when you go big, you, you can't be in customer calls every day or even every week or every month, but never stay away from uh, the engagement with your customers and partners. And actually in all sizes, you have to prioritize time for it as CEO or founder, or if you're, of course, CTO or CFO or CPO and founder, but you have to do it. That's the only way you get the pulse on what's going on, especially with the customers that are good representatives for a vertical. You're, of course, very much aligned because then you get the honest feedback as a CEO. That's important in a space like when you, where you create customer friendship platform, customer friendship software. It is more important than maybe a, a marketplace or, or, or a fintech company. So that's a big learning and I've continued to do that still today. We're 200 people uh, across many offices across the world and soon we'll probably be 500. Still, you have to do it. You have to carve out time for that. Otherwise, you will lose the magic at the sense of the market and your customers. Those are really solid pieces of advice for other entrepreneurs. I want to dig in on one other part. Could you give me some insight into what are the channels and strategies that worked for you to get your first 10 customer, first 100 customers, first 500 customers, for example? That's a very good question. First of all, we soft launched the product in, in Scandinavia in the summer of 2017. So we kind of had six months in stealth. So the first 10 customers we got on board, actually half of them at least 
have been very, very active in the product development from an insight and, and feedback perspective. So feedback loop. The only way we can build something that customer service agents, customer service managers really love is to take some of the, the gurus have seen in the future. We had companies like Interflora, Saxo.com, and even Bosch, actually, the, the kind of the online division of Bosch and the Nordics that were very close with us, very patient, very much aligned with our vision. So the first eight to 10 customers came during July is 17 and, and, and to, to year end. It's important that you know this, that you have the fit for your first portion of ICPs and vertical. Then in 2018, very much was around being marketing-led, product-led growth, where we had our, our C-round. I joined officially as CEO, and we put a lot of content out there about customer friendship, about customer care solved, and all these things. And it actually drove very quickly from, from 10 to, I would say, 50 customers, and then into 100 by the end, uh, end of 2018. Half of the customers came via inbound and then half was very much the close ecosystem in Denmark and Sweden that really needed to do something quickly. So that was very much driven by network relations, sell, but in a very digital form. And the rest was, we had signups from Australia, South Africa, US, UK. So all of a sudden, when we grew from zero-ish to $1 million ARR was customers from from all over the world. That was a good start, inbound driven, relational driven in a combination. So, but just sitting, waiting for inbound only, uh, I would never do that. Get out there. We had companies like Too Good To Go, the, the, the world's largest food waste app today, like more than thousand employees and 250 people sitting in, in Dix every day across many, many countries. Back then they were very small, but we knew this could be one of the stars. And of course, get those amazing consumer brands on board if you can keep up with their requirements and, and take savviness. Beginning of 2019 opened up for more markets. We established ourselves in London in the UK. We started out in Berlin in summer 2019. We got a really big VC investment from Berlin. Very much ex-Lando founders and an amazing help for us to drive our go-to-market because we're a small startup from Copenhagen getting a lot of inbound. And now we actually had to hire salespeople, uh, startup partnerships, understand how the dark region and UK market worked out. And, and that was a tough journey, but very happy for, for the help we got. And there we get, went from 100 and, and then we got up in the market. And there you don't have the same amount of customers. You're getting bigger customers, bigger contracts. And then by the end of 2019, we were at 200 customers. So you can see number of logos slowed down, but we started to take some significant brands on board. Still a lot of inbound, still a lot of lead generation, but it became a longer sales process, replacing three, four systems, uh, very much in the business outcome. So we started out to build a more tested methodology-driven sales process. Um, and that has been crystallized since then. And in 2020, we, we had the whole thing set up and hired a lot of people, like 40, 50 people into the sales and then COVID hit. So we had to reboot a little bit before finding our feet already in Q3 and saying it's not that bad. Companies, especially now, need customer service in all the growing industries and verticals. And, and from there on, where we are today... We are now very much established with very senior go-to-market uh, model, very advanced in marketing content that drives a 50-50 combination of, of go-to-market outbound-driven and, and inbound-driven customer acquisition. And we're continuing to go up in the market. We are continuing into verticals. We have 10 people in our go-to-market in the US today. We have 20 sitting in London, and we have 10, 15 out of Copenhagen, Amsterdam, Berlin. 
And then, of course, we have the whole supporting lead team in Ukraine, big marketing team. The hyper growth starts now. We had nice revenues into through COVID, but of course, we had to rethink our go-to-market when we came on the other side. Is there any advice you would give to entrepreneurs when they're starting off in their seed series A before they get lots of money and they can hire and basically put it in hyper growth mode in terms of how to scale? We should probably have done that earlier. We've done an amazing job on, on that, but that's going to drive a lot. Is the positioning driven by content, demand gen. You have to start very early and you, you cannot predict when it kicks in. So you still need your outbound, your relational selling, your partnership ecosystem build out. At the same time, you have to invest quite heavily. If you don't have big budgets, you need to be creative with your content. You need to be disruptive. You, you probably also need to do more podcasts and webinars and, and uh, events that you like as a founder and as a head of marketing or, or, or head of customer success uh, to, to show the world. Those things you have to start earlier, um, much earlier than you think, because it takes time to build and that will drive a lot of growth maybe in the second year. And then, of course, you need good old sales skills. What do you think about brand building? How do you think of brand in terms of the stage of the company and the influence it has on different aspects of the company? There's no doubt that today a brand in B2B and both an employer brand and, and, and a brand positioning in the market has become more important than ever. And so back to my content idea and, and talk, the positioning is linked to your branding. Half of it is, is how you act and how you see uh, the world as a company towards your employees, your partners, your stakeholders. From that perspective, we started not so much on that. It was more the customer friendship content, the talks. But we very early, when we were only 30 employees, we hired a, a head of people and culture and a head of talent acquisition. Two very, very strong ladies coming from, from the Scandinavian SaaS ecosystem. Many of my colleagues in the industry said, that's way too early. What are you playing a big company? And I, no, 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 we're doing it to make sure we get the right people on board. We invested heavily in talent assessment tools, making sure that the resilience and stamina of going into a startup that's going to go for a brumby ride, you need the right people, and you also need the right message in the market. So I think in the early days, the employer branding side of things is more important than the commercial branding side of things. And we did that. And that's where I think we benefit today and we still continue to invest in, in, in that area of our business. The content you see from Dixa is related to many different topics, diversity, inclusion, the challenging work of hybrid, of course, and the COVID times, all these things that are things we get from our own toolbox and playbook and we, we show the world. And then there's, of course, a lot of our customer marketing, the next generation CX and all these things and how things are moving. But I think it's a 50-50 from us today and will will be at least 50% on the employer branding side. I think that's, uh, that's super important today. I don't think I've heard someone else talk about branding and employer branding so explicitly, but it makes sense. And it's aligned with your vision of happy employees, happy customers, happy partners. I mean, you need to start with happy employees if you're going to make the other parts of your equation work. Um, yeah, because the relation you have to our champions out there, these are head of customer service, head of customer experience, head of customer success. It's a pretty close bond because they are trusting us with taking their different point solutions out, making it a better world for, first of all, their employees, and then, of course, also for our customers. And that's a big trust game to play. If you talk to them one day, many of them, hopefully all of them, you will see that they are pretty closely connected to, to Dixa and our large customer success team and the, and the marketing team as well. 
Lovely. Well, I think we've come to the end of the podcast, Mads. And usually before I let my guests go, I ask them a few of my favorite questions. And I'm going to start with what's your favorite book? Something that you've read that made an impact on you as a person that you would recommend? My favorite book is a book of Ben Horowitz. I think it's called The Hard Things About... The uh, Hard, Hard Truth About Hard Things, something like that. Hard Things About Hard Things. <laughs> but I love the book. So I read it and I also listened to it uh, on Audible when I'm out uh, walking and running. I think it has so much truth. And when you are a entrepreneur and a founder, you sometimes need to hear that it's not only you. It is really tough sometimes. And you have a huge responsibility towards, most importantly, your employees and customers and partners, but also stakeholders and investors and your family and yourself. So building a, a, a big company that hopefully will IPO and change the customer experience world because it's really needed. <laughs> it's ripe for taking. That requires some good reading. What about a favorite productivity tool or tip or hack, something that helps you be productive? Yeah, there's no doubt that everyone's favorite is basically, uh, for us, it's Slack and, and Notion. Those two tools are central to, to what we do in Dixa. But I also see a new breed of things, of course, Dixa for customer service and customer engagement. Uh, uh, not a big surprise, especially I think when you are a CEO and founder, and the pulse of the company is very much through those, those two systems. What about your favorite European city? It, it is Paris and it has always been Paris. <laughs> of course, I love Copenhagen. I love London. I love the places where we have offices. But from a personal perspective, at least Paris is my favorite city. It's the food, it's the people, it's the atmosphere. I think it's the relaxed style that is not every day for working in a scale up. Do you have a favorite quote? I have one, but it's a little bit harsh. It's a very uh, CEO thing. I think it was the CEO of Netscape. He said that if we have data, let's use data. If we only have opinions, let's go with mine. <laughs> <laughs> it really points out one of the problems in many startups and scale-ups. There's so many people that love it. Everything should be data-driven and proving in data. And they almost forget uh, the uh, intuitive way and, and sometimes just taking it down to earth, doing a very pragmatic approach to decision-making. Of course, you need data, especially in growth. You need more and more data to support your decisions and to understand that's what we what we preach as a as a customer service platform as well, but in leadership, uh, in decision making, and when things has to go fast, which is speed and time, is one of the biggest challenges in, in building a scale up. There, you need to be careful about falling in love with data and discovery. Well, thank you so much, Mads, for being on this podcast with me. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And I, I gained a lot from, from listening to you and uh, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much, Nida. Uh, it was a huge pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show and looking forward to catch up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.